The following audio is from City Rev Church. For more information about City Rev Church, visit us online at cityrev.org. My wife and I have entered into a new season as a married couple and as parents recently, where we are now the proud parents of a daughter who is in her terrible twos. Yes, all the Terrible Two families said amen. You guys know exactly what I'm talking about. For those of you that don't have children, how do you know you're in, they're in the Terrible Twos? Is it when they turn two? No, you just, you just know when you know, right? It's that beautiful moment where they start expressing their personality. They start showing that they can communicate better. And it's all well and good until, until it's not, right? The most recent thing that we're walking through with her is that she just has this knack for not listening to us, right? Like, it's almost impressive, actually. She, we will ask her to do something, or we'll ask her not to do something, and she doesn't flinch. She doesn't look back at us. She just goes about her merry way as if she never heard a thing. It's impressive, really. And if you ask my wife, she'd probably tell you, she definitely got that from me, all right? The, the gift of selective hearing. Any other husbands out there with that gift of selective hearing? Okay, maybe the wives will raise their hands for your husbands, right? Sometimes we can choose what we listen to, and it's, it's, it's a gift, really. And our daughters got that, okay? And so most recently, what we've been trying to navigate is how do we, how do we punish? How do we discipline this? How do we help her understand that that's not a good thing to do? And so last week I had a, a sit down. We, we put her in timeout and that was a whole thing. She was all hysterical, of course. And then when she got out, I sat down with her and I said, hey, Aria, do you know what you did? And she looks at me with this twinkle in her eye, brings out the bottom lip, drops her head and opens her arms like this and says, yes, Dada, I'm a bad listener. And I'm standing there with her. I look over at Melanie and my wife and I'm like, I can't do this. I'm like, I'm mouthing to her. I'm, I'm done. I can't. I'm, I'm going to go get her a lollipop. Okay. She's great. She's good. She's perfect now. And Melanie's mouthing to me. She's like, stand your ground. Okay. You pawn her. Sure. Okay. She's, she wasn't listening to me. We got to, we got to work through this together. And I'm like, I can't do it. I'm tapping out. Come in. Right. It's this whole thing that we're trying to navigate as parents. Why do I bring that up to you this morning? Well, because I believe that there's something there. I believe that's exactly where the enemy wants us. What do I mean by that? Well, later on that night, Melanie and I were talking, and of course, it was my wife that had this realization. She's the wise one between the two of us. And she said, hey, Josh, did you notice her language? Did you notice what she said? I'm like, no, what did she say? She said, I am a bad listener. It's almost as though she's adopted that identity upon herself and, that, herself, and that's just who she is now. She didn't say, oh, I didn't listen to you, or I made a mistake, or I just wasn't listening. She said, no, that's who I am. I am a bad listener. And maybe that head dropping and those arms open were not a ploy or a tactic to try to convince you to, to give her a lollipop, right? which she definitely does, and I definitely cave in sometimes. Maybe that was actual shame over who she feels like or who she believes she is. I believe that's exactly what the enemy tries to do in our lives. He tries to get us to a place of shame. Why? Because he can throw jabs at us all day and he can knock us down. 
But if he can get us to believe we lack the ability to get back up, if he can get us to, to bear shame over our lives, we will choose ourselves not to get back up. And we will believe we are powerless to stop it. And I believe this is actually where maybe most of our culture finds themselves today. They're bearing shame. They're bearing shame over who they believe they are. They're bearing shame over what they've done, their past mistakes. The guilt has gotten to them, and now they're experiencing shame in extreme measures. Studies are starting to show that shame as experienced as an emotion is one of the most painful emotions to experience. And the problem lies in the fact that our culture has no idea what to do with it. What do you do with shame? How do you get out of it? What do you do about it? Because the answers that we seem to have, the studies are starting to show that it's not working. I, I, and trust me, I looked, I went to Google, almighty Google, and I typed in, how do I deal with my shame? And there was a list that gave me the top 10 reasons. You won't believe number seven, right? And they're all just unknowingly, sure, but they're pointing you back in that cycle of bearing shame and dealing with the pain of it and going back into bearing sh more shame because of it and then going, and this is a cycle. So today we're going to be talking about shame and how the, the enemy seeks to get us there, his tactics, his schemes, and that what we can do to combat it. And it's surprisingly simple. We're going to begin in Ephesians chapter 6, what we've been journeying through together in this series. And it'll be really just to give you guys a, a recap and to help you know where we're at. And then we'll again go turn over to Zechariah chapter 3. But we'll begin in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. He says this, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm." Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And here in verse 17 is where we're going to stop for today and take up the helmet of salvation. So Paul sets out in reminding us, and Pastor Roby spoke to this a few weeks back, that, the, that our actual enemy is not flesh and blood. Our actual enemy is not a human being. It's in fact a spiritual force of evil. It's Satan. It's the, the demons, the spiritual battle that's happening around us. And that's a, such an important distinction for us to be constantly reminded of. Why? Because we keep making people our enemies. They're right there in front of us. And of course, we are all sinners, so we sin against each other, and we like to make our coworkers, our bosses, our, our spouse, our siblings, our friends, our fellow church members, enemies in our lives. But the reality is, Paul's like, hey, they're not your enemy. The enemy wants us to be infighting. He wants us to be distracted by what's happening here in the community. But the reality is, there's a battle being waged all around you, and you're not engaged in it. Such an important thing for us to always remember and keep in mind as a church. So go ahead, turn to the person next to you and say, hey, you're not my enemy, especially if they're your spouse, right? You're not my enemy. Turn to the person on the other side and say, don't worry, you're not my enemy either. 
And what we've been doing together as a church is journeying through this passage and talking about each piece of armor of God and how there's schemes of the devil, ways in which he operates that we need different pieces of armor to put up that we can withstand, stand firm against the schemes of the devil. And today we're going to focus on the helmet of salvation. So what is it that we have to put on to to protect our minds? And what does salvation have to do with it? Well, I believe there's a passage in Scripture that beautifully speaks to this, gives us a beautiful picture better than maybe any other. It's in Zechariah chapter 3. So if you haven't turned there already, go ahead and turn there. We'll begin with verse 1. We'll just read that to get the context. He says this, Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. All right, pause right there. Let's get our bearings on this passage for a moment. The context of this verse here, this chapter, is, is Zechariah is receiving a vision from the Lord. And this is the fourth of eight visions that he writes about in this letter. He's a prophet to Israel, and he's communicating this to the Israelite people. And he gives us a picture first of a man named Joshua, great name by the way, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, which is God, with Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Who's Joshua the high priest? Well, it's not the Joshua that you may or may not be familiar with, the one who succeeded from Moses and led the Israelite people into the promised land. No, this is a different Joshua who comes in as the high priest after the the Israelite people had just been freed from their Babylonian captivity. If you remember with me, the Babylonian exile, where where you get stories like Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the fiery furnace, Daniel in the lion's den. And then you have Nehemiah who leads the charge out to rebuild the walls outside, rebuild Jerusalem. And then you have Ezra who seeks to rebuild the temple, right? So they've just been freed from exile. This is a big time for the, the Israelite people as a nation. And he's standing there. He's one of the first high priests post exile. And that high priest position is one that goes all the way back to the beginning of scripture, an office that was set apart what was described very specifically earlier on in the Bible. You can find a lot of the descriptions of the high priest in Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. His his role was to, even with the tabernacle and then now the temple, is to enter into the innermost room, the Holy of Holies, where the presence of God dwelled on one day a year, on the Day of Atonement, and he would make a sacrifice on behalf of the Israelite people before God. So essentially, he became this intermediary between God and his people. So this is a very important person and a very important office. Even down to the articles of clothing that he would be required to wear, it's all laid out for us in Scripture. It was Every article had a unique symbol and a unique purpose. And what's he doing? What does Zechariah see him doing? Well, he's standing before God and Satan ready to accuse him. Now, this should come as no, to no surprise to any of us. Satan is doing exactly what he does. His name literally means adversary or the accuser. And so if you read it in the original language, it literally says the accuser is standing there ready to accuse him. It's who he is. It's what he does. What happens next? Let's keep reading verse 2 and verse 3. 
And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. So God looks over to Satan and rebukes him. He rebukes him. He says, is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Most likely referring to their exile. They've now been freed. How can you stand and accuse him? But look at what Joshua is wearing. Filthy garments. The literal translation for filthy garments is clothes covered in excrement. Sorry for the the bad picture on the Sunday morning, but that's quite literally what the Bible is wanting us to see is a high priest completely covered in excrement, just filthy, dirty. And so you can imagine how Joshua the high priest feels standing before almighty God in his filthiness, in his shame. And you have the enemy standing ready to accuse him. What is this communicating to us? What is this telling us? It's that Satan is ready. He's got his book. He's probably flipped it out and said, all right, God, I've got all of his sins. I'm ready to accuse him. You want the list alphabetically or chronologically? Because there's a lot and we got to get through this together. And before Satan can even say anything in this courtroom, God looks at him and rebukes him and says, that's all ruled inadmissible before he even gets a chance to start. And he rebukes the accuser. Can you imagine Joshua's reaction? Well, what happens next? Check it out in verse four. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him, he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed them with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my way and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts. And I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and his fig tree. So he doesn't just rebuke Satan the accuser. He turns to Joshua and he has the filthy garments removed and he puts on pure vestments symbolizing glory, symbolizing righteousness. And he puts a turban on his head symbolizing royalty and says, you are now an heir. You are now a son or daughter. You are now part of the family. And then he gives him a a charge and a promise. He charges him, hey, If you will keep my commandments, if you will walk in my ways, then, here's the promise, you will be a keeper of my courts and you will have direct access to this room, meaning you will have direct access to me. And then he begins to talk about the things to come, right? He's speaking to this day, this beautiful, glorious day that someone would come and wipe away the iniquities of everyone before us. 
on a single day. He speaks of a branch. He's referring to a prophecy in the book of Jeremiah that a branch of David would come and he would be that perfect sacrifice. He would be that person in a single day to do so. Church, do you see what's happening here? This is a beautiful prophetic message for the Israelite people in that day. But do you see what this means for us? If we could just peel back a layer for a moment and read it again through our lens, through our perspective. You see, the name Joshua is English, but in Hebrew, it means Yeshua. It's pronounced Yeshua. And if you translate that to the Greek, it's the name Jesus. What we've been given here is a picture of Jesus. You see, approximately 500 years later, he would come down from heaven, born of a Virgin Mary, and live a perfect life. He would then go die on the cross for all of our sins, past, present, and future. He would defeat death, rise again the third day, and ascend into heaven above And and declare that if we just have faith in him, faith in what he has done, then his sacrifice would be washed over us. And we would then be made new. You see, we stand in the courtroom as well. With God before us, clothed in filthy garments, and in our shame, in our guilt, in our embarrassment, we stand before him with Satan standing ready to accuse us. But before he can even get started, God looks at us and he sees his son over us. He sees his son's righteousness over us. The blood of Jesus washed over through our faith. He sees that in us. He looks at us and stops the accuser, rebukes him, and he begins to dress us with pure vestments, clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. He begins to put a turban on on our heads and says, you now, through your faith in my son, through his sacrifice, you are now an heir to the kingdom. You are now a son or a daughter of God. You are now my son or daughter. You are royalty. And he looks at the accuser and rebukes him and says, all of what you have in that book of list, that list of things that they've done, though it may be true, is ruled as inadmissible in my courtroom. I love how Pastor Roby a few weeks back put it. God has no foil. He is the one true authority. He has no equal villain, if you will. There is no equal to God. He is in complete and total control, which gives him complete and total authority to make that decision, to make that call over our lives. And so when the enemy shoots his accusations at us, they should just simply fall flat at our feet because they have no power here any longer. It's been ruled inadmissible, though they may be true. And that's, Christian, our call to view life. That's the way in which we should view our salvation. That when the enemy comes and takes his jabs, 
When the enemy comes and accuses us, we now can look at it through the lens of the gospel, the lens of salvation, and protect our mind from those accusations and let them fall flat at our feet, knowing that they are powerless. They are meaningless. That is the helmet of salvation. So the main idea, the main point of this sermon is this. And if you're taking notes, go ahead and write this down. This is what I want you to remember. If you remember nothing else, it's that salvation, the gospel, has become our defense against the accusations of the devil. I'll read it again. Salvation or the gospel has become our defense against the accusations of the devil. So why then does he continue to accuse us? I mean, it's who he is, right? It's what he does. And biblically, we're told he still, he still stands there trying to accuse us. Why does he do that? One of the best trilogies to ever be made, and I'll argue you on this, okay, is the Back to the Future trilogy, all right? Any Back to the Future fans out here? All right, good. You guys have great taste in movies, okay? Sure, there's lots of people over at Cooper City, Back to the Future, just a phenomenal trilogy. And one of the comedic themes that's woven throughout the series is this idea that Marty McFly, the main character, he has just this really tough skin, right? He gets name called, he gets pushed around, they talk bad about him, they make fun of him, like it doesn't bother him at all. He's got just nerves of steel, but until that one insult comes out, right? It's when that that protagonist comes out and they're like, they lean back, antagonist, I should say. They lean back, kind of look down on him, and they go, what are you, chicken? And everyone's like, that's really the best they got, right? It's part of the comedy of the movie, right? But then everyone knows Marty McFly kind of leans forward. He's angry. And whatever it is they were challenging him to do, he's now going to do it, okay? Nothing's going to stop him. And every, all his friends and his family around him, they're like, no, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, okay? Oh my goodness, not again, don't do it. And he's like, I'm going to do it. And he does whatever it is they were, they were taunting him to do because they called him a chicken. I was actually watching like a behind the scenes with the writers on, that, on the trilogy and they were talking about it and they were saying, yeah, it was comedic, but there was actually like an undertone there to it. What we were trying to get at is it hurt him so much because there was some truth to it. Like he needed a lot of courage throughout the series. And so that was just, that was just the insult that would trigger him. I think the enemy aims in the same way towards us. You see, it's one thing if it's a lie. Lies sometimes can be easier to spot. Hey, you'll never measure up. You'll never be good enough. You see that, what you just did there? Like, that's just a sign. You're just always going to be that way. Like, he, he loves to shoot lies at us. And Pastor Justin did an excellent job preaching on how we best combat against that scheme of the devil, the lies of the enemy, right? And putting on the belts of truth. But it's another thing entirely when there's some truth to it. When he brings up our pasts, when he brings up our failures, when he brings up our mistakes, our weaknesses, our vulnerabilities, when he brings up unresolved conflicts and relational issues, he starts saying things like, you're a liar. 
you're a liar. You see the impact of that lie you just told? Man, you're a liar. Oh, you drank too much that day. You're an alcoholic. You see how you, you lashed out at that person in your anger? You're, you have anger issues. You're an alcoholic. And you see, you lust, un, un, you just always are lusting, and you are just an addict. And he seeks to put labels on us and tell us that's who we are. And what hurts so much and what gets us going is there's a little bit of truth to it. And he's latched on to a sin that we've struggled with or something that we've walked through or a mistake that we've made. What's he trying to do? Well, let me tell you what happens when we take off that helmet of salvation. We start to believe him. And that guilt comes flooding back and weighing down on us to a point where we just get knocked down. And then we start adopting Satan's language as our own. And we start saying, I am a liar. It's who I am. I can't, I don't have anything to say about it. I don't have any control over it. It's who I am. I am an alcoholic. I do have anger issues. I just, I'm, I am a bad person. I am a sinner. And the guilt shifts into this point of shame. And he no longer has to take jabs at us. He just reminds us. And we stay down. We stay knocked down because of the pain that that shame bears in our lives. And what that leads to is I think three different ways we experience this. The first one is this, that shame leads to isolation from reality. Shame leads to isolation from reality. If you think back with me for a moment to, Galatians, to Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve ate of the fruit, the first thing that they did is they hid in their shame. They isolated themselves. It's what we do naturally as human beings. When we, when we have shame, we bear shame, we run and we hide. And one of the first things that I think we tend to do is we isolate from reality itself and it manifests itself in different ways. I think the first of which is we enter into this moment of denial. We come face to face with our depravity. We come face to face with our sin. We bear so much shame that it's painful to, to face it. And so it's less painful to deny that it exists. And we walk around life like everything's great. We pretend like everything's fine. It doesn't exist. It didn't happen. I didn't, it didn't happen. I didn't do that thing. I didn't make that mistake. I didn't say that thing to that person. I didn't make that mistake again. No, 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 it didn't happen. And you go into denial and we walk around singing like the, the Lego movie song, right? Everything is awesome. Everything is cool when you're part of a team or a church, right? Like everything's happy-go-lucky. Everything's good. I'm not going to admit what's actually happening in my heart. And for a season, the pain of suppressing it is easier than the pain of addressing it. And it just builds and grows behind the scenes. We deny it exists. Then we might enter to a point of avoidance. We avoid it exists. And at that point, when we start to avoid what our depravity is showing in us, we're face-to-face -face with our, how much of a sinner we are. We're face-to-face -face with what we're dealing with here. We start to just avoid it altogether. We think if we avoid it, it will go away. But what really happens is our growth then becomes stunted because we can't face what we have to confront. And we're unable to 
address it and talk about it with people. This makes us people that are impossible to engage in conflict resolution with because the pain of talking about it hurts so much that I can't talk about it with you. So we just avoid the situation altogether. And it fractures relationships. It fractures relationships even with family that goes so deep, but sometimes that makes them so painful when shame bears fruit. We avoid it. Sometimes we go into projection mode and we start looking to other people and it's boiling up. We don't know what to do with shame. And so it just kind of leaks from time to time. And it comes out in anger. It comes out in frustration. It comes out in a way we treat people or we just, we can't see that person anymore. I don't even know that I can put my finger on it as to why it wasn't really even that big of a deal, but I bear so much shame for what happened because of what I did to you or what you did to me. And so I'm just gonna, I, I project it onto you and I'm out of here. I just can't do it any longer. And it leaks out and our pain shows and we react poorly when we're in pain. We don't operate in wisdom when we're in pain. We're just trying to avoid the pain. And then finally, I think we enter into like a season of escapism where we just seek to numb the pain. And we turn to things like drugs and alcohol. We turn to things like pornography. We turn to things like maybe an obsessive use of entertainment. Whatever it is we can find, whatever it is we can do to just simply numb the pain because we've become so used to it, so accustomed to it, we don't know what to do with it, and so we just run from it, we hide from it, we seek to escape from it. And there are things that we find in our lives that might provide a temporary relief. And though we know it's temporary, we don't know what else to do, we just seek to escape from it. Church, can I remind you? We know exactly what to do with it. Shame doesn't just lead to isolation from reality. No, it also leads to isolation from community. We start to isolate from people around us because of all those things that are going on inside of us. We, have, we bear all this shame that we now seek to hide from maybe even our church family, maybe even our, our small group, maybe even our, our serving team. We don't get involved in church anymore because there's just too much pain there associated with it. And maybe you're at a point where you don't even remember why there's pain associated with it, but it's there. And so you just try to avoid it altogether. And maybe I could be a, bold, be a bit bold here for a moment. And maybe you're tuning in online right now because you still bear shame and, re, and just can't find your way to get back into church. Just being here presents pain. And so you just avoid it altogether. I think we as a church walked through something very similar together throughout the pandemic, where all of us for however long, however length of time, were forced to be isolated. And so there was shame that was born there. And I think, studies don't say this yet, but this is my theory, that it bore so much shame that that is one of the reasons to the mental health crisis that we face today. People have so much shame in their lives, they don't know what to do with it. So they're in so much pain and they're just dealing with it, they're coping with it, however the world tells them to, and they're trying everything. 
and it just results in more pain. And maybe, church, we've disconnected. Even, even if we're here, we could still be disconnected. And you might be that person who's like, oh, I know, we did the sermon series. I know, the church needs me, and I need the church. I need the body of Christ. There's so much beauty in that. I know I have giftings that the church needs, and there's a role that I play here. I get all that. I know, I know, I know. It just hurts too much. And maybe the season has passed. Maybe even whatever the sin was that bore shame has passed, but the shame has stayed. And maybe we don't go to small group any longer because we left poorly or we said something we regretted or they said something they regretted and they, they had an opinion that deferred from us and there was just this conflict and we didn't know how to handle it and now we just, just better, not, better off to just avoid it. And it's too painful to enter back into a small group setting. It's too painful to enter back into a serving setting because the shame's there. Shame leads to isolation from reality. Shame leads to isolation from community and shame leads to isolation from intimacy with God. Ultimately, that's where we end up. We start to struggle with confronting and walking into the courtroom and speaking to our Heavenly Father, our Creator. Why? Because we still feel as though we have filthy garments over us. We don't belong there. That's not where we should be. I have so much shame. How could I go and talk to my Creator? And our prayer life starts to suffer. We don't touch the Bible. There's just a repellent that's inside of us from it. And maybe it's something as simple as shame and not knowing how to read it, not knowing how to engage with it. Maybe shame and where we feel as though we're at in our maturity with Christ versus where we should be, whatever it could be. We make these situations up in our minds or the enemy pokes and prods at it. But again, church, can I remind you, we know exactly what to do with shame. We know exactly what to do with the accusations of the enemy. It's why Paul has the boldness to speak in Romans chapter 8 that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That the, all that guilt, all that shame has been bought and paid for through Jesus on the cross. And that any amount of guilt or shame that we feel in our lives, we feel happening over us, is manufactured by ourselves or by and through the enemy. And that those accusations are meaningless, they're powerless. And so when we feel shame for who we are or what we've done, that needs to be brought to the feet of Jesus because it's been bought and paid for already. There should be no guilt or shame in our lives. Absolutely none. And I think the reality of the situation is when we walk in life, as we grow in our maturity of Christ, that is, that simultaneously what happens is we grow in recognition of our own depravity. And what would hopefully grow simultaneously is a deepening understanding of how beautiful and powerful the gospel is. But sometimes there's a discrepancy and we let the recognition of our depravity grow faster than our deepening understanding of the gospel and this gap creates shame and guilt. But every time we're confronted with just how depraved we are, just how much of a sinner we are, we go back to the gospel, we go back to Jesus, we put on the helmet of salvation and we view it from that lens, a lens of, the, of salvation, a lens through, through faith in Jesus that we no longer have any reason for guilt and shame because the enemy has no grounds here. It should fall flat at our feet. And so it's through the gospel, it's with the helmet of salvation that we can live 
in community. It's through the gospel that we can live in reality. The fact is we as believers, people who have, uh, are followers of Jesus, who have salvation in the gospel, we should be able to live in reality like no one else can on this earth. Because we all recognize, hey, I'm just a work in progress. I'm a sanctified believer is the word that scripture uses, set apart, worked on. And so I'm able to live in reality more than anyone else because I, I'm okay with confronting the fact that I'm a sinner. I'm okay with recognizing yeah, I messed up. I made a mistake because there's no guilt or shame associated with it. And we're able to say, hey, I, I know I'm, I was a lost person, but I've been found. I have been found by Jesus. Hey, I know that I am a sinner, but I'm a work in progress. We can say, hey, I know that I was a liar. I was a drunkard. I was someone controlled by lusts or addiction, but I'm now a holder of truth. I'm now an heir to the kingdom. I am now a son or daughter of God. We can say I'm no longer fearful over what is in store for me because I know God has a plan for me and I'm, I'm, I am royalty in his eyes. We can live in reality through the lens of the gospel. We can live in community through the lens of the gospel. We can go and, and talk and confront our brothers and sisters in Christ and be encouraged and to encourage others because of who we know we are in Jesus. And we can rub against shoulder to shoulder, iron sharpening iron and growing and learning together because we know we're all in the same boat. None of us have conquered sin in our lives completely. And we seek to learn from each other. That's what God wants to do with community. And so it's through the lens of the gospel, it's through salvation that we're able to live in community like no one else. And then thirdly, we're able to live in community. We're able to live in intimacy with God. We're capable of living in intimacy with God through salvation. We have direct access to the throne room. It doesn't matter when the last time it was that we read our Bible or how well we read it or how, uh, how great we are at understanding it or how well we pray. It doesn't matter. We have direct access to God and there should be no guilt or shame in our lives. That conversation with my daughter, through conversations with my wife, I think we might have improved our language a little bit. I think it's important that I share it because in that illustration, I'm the devil, right? You're a bad listener. Horrible. That's just parenting. And it was in that moment where she was head down, arms open, and I said, Aria, you know you're actually a really good listener? You listen all the time. And her head came up. I said, Mama and Dad, I really love you. And Melanie chimed in here too, my wife. She said, we really love you. Just sometimes you choose not to listen but we really want what's best for you. So you need to do your best to listen, but you are a really good listener. And can I tell you her reaction? Her head wasn't just lifted. You saw joy enter back into her face. Something I hadn't seen in her at post punishment ever. And she was joyful and ran back and started playing with her toys again, all happy. And Melanie and I looked at each other. We're like, it's like a different person all through helping her walk through the fact that that's not her identity. It's just a mistake she made. 
and she can have the joy of the Lord enter back into her because there is no guilt or shame that should be in our lives at all. And my hope and prayer is if you're somebody, whether you're a believer in Christ or not, we fall into this trap, this scheme of the devil to bear shame over our sins and past mistakes. My hope and prayer is that we would be that this morning. Our heads would be lifted high once again, reminded of the gospel, reminded of our salvation who is found in Jesus and Jesus Christ alone. And we could enter on, we can press on in our life full of joy, knowing who we are in Jesus and that the enemy's accusations that he constantly throws before us will fall flat at our feet because we know the truth the truth that he doesn't want us to be reminded of, the truth that the enemy doesn't want us to know, that they are meaningless, they are powerless here in the name of Jesus. Let me pray for you all this morning. Heavenly Father, I lift up everyone here in our church, everyone here in City Rev, everyone at Cooper City Campus, everyone tuning in online, and my prayer is that we would do just that together as a church that if there's any bit of shame we are bearing in our lives today, if there's any bit of guilt that we're holding onto in our lives today, Father, that you would help us eradicate it through the lens of the gospel, that you would give us the strength, that you'd give us the courage to place on the helmet of salvation and to have the lens to view our lives the way you see us to see us the way you see us, not the way the enemy sees us. And that we would adopt the language that you use on our behalf, that you are, that we are a son and daughter of Christ, that we are royalty, that we are heirs to the kingdom, that our sins have been bought and paid for once and for all, past, present, and future that Jesus is our high priest. He is our intermediary father, and he's also our Messiah that we would use the language that God uses to describe us and not the language that the enemy uses to describe us. What I want to do this morning for that person that may be struggling with guilt or struggling with shame, whether you profess Jesus as your Savior or not, I want to give you an opportunity to say, Jesus, I cast all my shame, all my guilt at your feet. I want to give you that opportunity to say, hey, God, I have forgotten. I have borne shame in my life despite proclaiming Jesus in it. And I've been paying the price for it. So all that can hear me online in Cooper City here at the West Pines campus, I want to give you the opportunity to take a physical act of response. One that you would remember, not just words there in your seat with everyone's eyes closed and heads bowed, but an act physically of just simply raising your hand and saying, God, that's me. I am living in shame. I am living in guilt and it has held me back, but it will no longer hold me back in the name of Jesus. I see them. Raise those hands. Let them be physical acts, physical reminders that today's the day that you no longer let shame, no longer let guilt control you. Amen. Amen. Church, would you pray with me? Lord, I lift up those that raised their hands.
here this morning. Whether it be here at the West Pines campus at Cooper City or online, Lord, grant them that strength. Even those that, that didn't raise their hands that are still at war with it, Father, give them eyes to see themselves as you see them and free them from that guilt or shame today in the name of Jesus. And once again, I lift up our whole church that we going forward at the moment we see or we hear accusations of the enemy, we hear those thoughts in our minds describing ourselves as ways that you would not see, seek to describe us, that we would put a stop to it and remind ourselves of the gospel, that we would remind ourselves of salvation, that today in that day when Jesus died on the cross, that was the day that no more guilt and no more shame should exist in the eyes of a believer that you would keep that in the forefront of our minds and that as we grow in you, you would continue to grow us and mature us in our understanding and in our awe of the power of the gospel. We lift this all up in your son's precious name, Jesus' name. Thanks Amen. for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at cityrev.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, you can email us at podcast at cityrev.org.